Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop presents Bring the Noise, a history of early hip-hop. After nearly a decade as an underground art form, the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight thrust hip-hop into the mainstream in 1979. In less than a year, Curtis Blow became the first rapper to be signed by a major record label, and his two singles, Christmas Rap and The Breaks, both moved about 500,000 copies. However, most of the real excitement in hip-hop was at the small labels, like Enjoy Records, Tommy Boy Records, Profile Records, and Tough City Records, who started releasing singles with a wide variety of rap styles. Many labels stuck with the disco rap sound, pioneered by DJ Hollywood and mimicked by the Sugar Hill Gang, but other labels promoted the kind of hip-hop you'd hear at a park party, featuring more sophisticated rhyming schemes and a simpler, stripped-down approach to the beat, as opposed to the flamboyant flourishes of disco. There was one group, though, that did a little bit of both to make their mark, the Funky 4 Plus 1. In a roundabout way, the Funky 4 Plus 1 came together because of kung fu movies. Many Americans were introduced to Eastern martial arts while they were soldiers serving in Japan following World War II. When they returned home, these soldiers sought out Asian immigrants to continue their training or open their own schools of karate and judo. In the 1960s, the fighting forms were featured in television shows like Britain's espionage thriller The Avengers, and Bruce Lee highlighted his skills as Kato, the sidekick to the Green Hornet. In film, 1962 saw Frank Sinatra fight a karate-using henchman in The Manchurian Candidate, and James Bond took on ninjas in 1967's You Only Live Twice. But the karate craze really kicked off with the release of the 1972 television series Kung Fu, starring David Carradine as a Shaolin monk who wandered the American Old West. As quickly as you can, snatch the pebble from my hand. When you can take the pebble from my hand, it will be time for you to leave. Shortly after, in March of 1973, Warner Brothers, the same company that made Kung Fu the television show, distributed Five Figures of Death, the first Hong Kong-made martial arts movie to get a major U.S. release. The new movie sensation that's stunning the world, the martial arts masterpiece, sights and sounds like never before. Cheer the young warrior who alone takes on the evil warlords of martial arts. See one incredible onslaught after the other. Come prepared for the thrill of a lifetime. Although it started as little more than clever cross-marketing, Five Fingers of Death opened the floodgates for so-called chop-saki flicks. Just a few months later, in May, three Hong Kong films, Fists of Fury, starring Bruce Lee, The Hand of Death, and the still-popular Five Fingers of Death were the number one, two, and three movies at the box office. This type of success led to the release of 30 kung fu movies at U.S. theaters in 1973 alone. Kung fu films were especially popular among the black and Puerto Rican population of New York City. Not only were they low-budget films that primarily played in the grindhouse theaters most commonly found in the lower-income boroughs, but they also starred minorities, who were usually underdogs fighting back against those in power in order to right some wrong. In this way, they shared a lot of similarities with the attitudes and themes present in exploitation films that were showing in the same theaters, like Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Coffee, and Three the Hard Way. In fact, once the martial arts film started to take off, many exploitation films began integrating kung fu into action scenes. One in particular, Black Belt Jones, starring Jim Kelly, who fought alongside Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon, was about a black martial artist who takes on the mafia after they kill his sensei. Enter Jim 
dragon, Kelly. He clobbers the mob as Black Belt Jones. Soon, karate and other Eastern martial arts were everywhere. From TV to movies to magazines to comic books and even music, with Carl Douglas's now famous gold selling single, Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting. Everybody was Kung Fu Fighting. Those kids were fast as lightning. Thanks to the martial arts fad, more young people began showing an interest in learning karate and judo. So, what started as an activity for adults soon became a way for kids to learn discipline, maintain physical fitness, and, quite frankly, as a way to keep them busy after school so they wouldn't get into any mischief. And it was through karate classes in the Bronx that Kimoni Chapel met the godfather of hip-hop, DJ Cool Herc. Kimoni and his little brother Baron would tag along with Herc to help carry record crates and sound equipment to get into Herc gigs for free. Inspired by Herc, Baron began performing as DJ Baron at his own park parties while still in high school. Meanwhile, Keith Williams started in hip-hop as a graffiti writer and as a b-boy at Africa Bambata shows but later got into DJing under the name DJ Breakout. He got the name from the 1976 video game of the same name, where the player is trying to break through a wall of bricks using a ball that bounces off a platform scrolling along the bottom of the screen. But there was also a nice synergy there with Breaker, the name Cool Herc coined for dancers at a hip-hop party that would later become Break Dancer. DJ Breakout was also practicing karate, so he and DJ Baron's brother Kimoni were running in the same circles. At one of Breakout's early shows in a local schoolyard, Kimoni invited Breakout to come by the house sometime and listen to records. The Chapel Brothers and Breakout became fast friends, and the two aspiring DJs, Breakout and Baron, formed their own mobile DJ crew known as the Brothers Disco in 1976. Mimicking their idols DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bambata, the Brothers Disco knew they would need to put together a killer sound system if they were going to make their mark in the hip-hop scene. They found their secret weapon in garbage can speakers. The guys took two 55-gallon steel drums and put them up on legs, then they would mount 15-inch woofer speakers in the drums. The sound would resonate out until, as their sound guy Tony Tone said, quote, you could hear it for at least 10 blocks. Combined with good quality amps and turntables and supporting speakers, they had a sound system that rivaled DJ Cool Herc's Herculoids. Because their sound was so big, they nicknamed the system the Mighty Mighty Sasquatch. Over the coming months, the duo found success among the Bronx Park Party crowd, but to really elevate their game, they decided to add a rapper to their crew. At his own karate class, DJ Barron met a boy a couple of years younger than him named Keith Smith. Smith started coming around Barron's house when he was spinning records and would spit the occasional rhyme over Barron's beats. Soon the two were working together to mutually develop their hip-hop skills. During some of Barron's first DJ gigs in early high school, the 13-year-old Smith would tag along and get on the mic but he was so small he had to stand on a stool in order to be seen by the crowd. Since they came up together, it seemed natural that Smith would be the Brothers Disco's first MC. Smith adopted multiple stage names, but usually went by K.K. Rockwell or the voice of K.K. Another rapper soon joined the Brothers Disco stable, David Parker, a.k.a. Busy B. Busy B was considered one of the premier rappers in early hip-hop and would go on to become one of the most famous battle rappers of the early 1980s. The interesting thing about Busy, though, is that he was a bit of a nomad when it came to performing. He never really aligned himself with any one DJ or group, but was loosely affiliated with just about every DJ performing at the time. In true Busy fashion, he performed with the Brothers Disco sporadically, but never settled into what would become the Funky Four. By 1978, the Brothers Disco and KK Rockwell were starting to build a name for themselves, but rap crews were starting to become more popular. In the early days of hip-hop, MCs and DJs were typically a pair. The MC was really only there to make announcements and to occasionally pump up the DJ, so he wasn't really the focal point of the show. 
In fact, it wasn't unusual for the mic to be available to anyone in the crowd who wanted to come up and say a few funky rhymes or shout out their friends. But as the art form of rapping became more fully developed, MCs actually had songs that they performed to certain beats played by the DJ. So it became important for the DJ and the MC to be in sync. But things really blew up when Nathaniel Glover, known as Kid Creole, and his younger brother Melvin, known as Melly Mel, both of Grandmaster Flash's crew, began performing routines together. For example, Creole might say one line of a rhyme, but Mel would say the second line. And their complexity only grew from there. This absolutely blew the minds of the audience, and this brought a whole new level of entertainment to a Grandmaster Flash show. So obviously, other DJs wanted to copy it. Here's a sample of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five from 1979 to give you an idea of how they'd pass the mic back and forth to really wow the crowd. Baron and Breakout didn't want to be left behind in this new rap development, so they also started to build up a crew of MCs. In order to find more rappers, the Brothers Disco started holding auditions. The first new MC they found was Keith Caesar, known as Keith Keith. Keith Keith and KK Rockwell had met through various after-school activities, yes, including karate classes. So when Breakout and Baron were looking for another voice, KK recommended his friend for the job. Keith's interest in hip-hop started as a b-boy, often dancing at DJ Breakout gigs. The third member of the group was a bit unusual for rap at the time. Sharon Green, a.k.a. Shaw Rock, started her hip-hop aspirations as a b-girl in 1976, but had started to write her own rhymes shortly after. At first, the brothers Zisco turned her down, partially due to the fact that there weren't any female MCs at the time in the machismo-fueled world of hip-hop, and they didn't think she'd be able to hold her own on the stage. But Shaw Rock kept practicing, kept coming back to audition, and had soon earned a spot on the crew. If you ask almost any rap historian today, most would say that Shaw Rock was one of the strongest rappers in the Funky Four. Between the two DJs of the Brothers Disco, Breakout's style was more conducive to rapping, as his sets were mostly made up of long stretches of breakbeat loops. Baron was known for a lot of scratching and cross-cutting between songs, which was preferred by the b-boys and girls, but made it difficult for a rapper to find a flow. So they both had their specialties. But that usually meant that rappers would bow out and let the breakers take center stage whenever Baron came up to spin. This annoyed Baron, so he began the search for a rapper that could handle his DJing style. Guy Todd Williams, who went by the stage name Rahim, was an MC from a rap group called Master Plan 2 and the Phase 1 Crew. Unlike a lot of other hip-hop groups at the time, they didn't travel from house to house or between the parks to play gigs. They had a set home that they would throw a party at every weekend, treating it more like a club than a traveling troupe of entertainers. Master Plan 2 and the Phase 1 Crew were seeing mild success in their own bubble of the Bronx, but because they didn't travel anywhere, the success had a limit that Rahim could see coming. So a mutual friend of Rahim and the Brothers Disco set up an audition for Rahim during a DJ battle between the Brothers Disco and another DJ crew called the Little Brothers. That night, as usual, whenever Baron got up to DJ, KK Rockwell, Shaw Rock, and Keith Keith would take a break to let the B-boys and B-girls do their thing. So during this lull in the rapping, Rahim picked up the mic and rhymed while Baron spun records and the breakers danced. Although Rahim recalls he didn't have a lot of rhymes at the time, Baron remembers things very differently. In the book Yes, Yes, Y'all, Baron had this to say, quote, Rahim had the style I liked, like KK, just keeping on and on and on, no stopping, a good flow. So I said, when I get on, you rap. Rahim was my own personal MC. 
According to Raheem, he was wearing a signature Brothers Disco sweatshirt, white with black letters on the front, by the end of the night. He was in. And soon after, this new crew was christened the Funky Four. Aside from being a good rapper, Raheem brought a musicality to the group as well. Raheem was a singer who was greatly influenced by a doo-wop group in the neighborhood called GQ, so much so he took his stage name from one of the members of the group. Doo-wop groups were known for singing in harmony while performing coordinated dance steps, so Raheem had the idea to inject those ingredients into hip-hop. Previously, rappers performed more like the Sugar Hill Gang had on Rapper's Delight, taking turns with each rapper doing a verse, then the next rapper singing a verse, and so on. Kid Creole and Melly Mel, along with fellow Flash crew member Keith Cowboy Wiggins, had brought a new dynamic with their back-and-forth rhyme routines, but the Funky Four took that another step further. Raheem's idea was to imitate R&B acts of the day, like the Jackson 5 and the Temptations, by rapping with each other in harmony. Sometimes they would rap parts of a verse together, or hand verses back and forth to one another in the middle of the song. There were even times entire verses, and especially choruses, would be rapped in unison. And they did all of this while performing choreographed dance moves. As Keith Keith would recall in the book Break Beats in the Bronx, quote, The crowd was shocked and amazed. We were blazing them with the harmonizing and slamming them with the dance steps. To give you an idea of the influence R&B had on the Funky Four's performance, here's the Jackson 5 singing one of their big hits, ABC, from 1970. Notice how the lead singer is clearly Michael Jackson, but his brothers will occasionally chime in with part of a verse or in unison with Michael to emphasize certain words. Now here's a little bit of the Funky Four's biggest hit, That's the Joint, from 1980. This musicality in the Funky Four routine was a very important and underappreciated step in the evolution of hip-hop. Before the Funky Four, DJs and the sound system were the stars of the show. Whenever a rapper came on stage, they performed behind the turntables, so the DJ was always the focus for the audience. But it was Jazzy D, DJ Breakout's brother and the group's manager, who takes credit for a major shift in the history of rap music. And yes, yes, y'all, D says, quote, The Funky Four was the first ones that used mic stands in front of the DJs. All the MCs used to stand back behind the DJs. I brung out four mic stands, and I put them out in front of the DJs. By shifting the focus away from DJs Baron and Breakout, the MCs, the Funky Four, became the primary draw at shows. And by making the routines more complex and musical, the Funky Four MCs justified that shift. Jazzy D also stakes claim to one of the defining sounds of the Funky Four, the echo chamber. The echo chamber was a piece of DJ equipment that could be quickly turned on and off to add reverb to the sound coming out of the sound system. It's designed to mimic the physical echo chamber that you might find in a high-end recording studio, where speakers are set up on one end of an empty hallway, and when the music is played, it echoes, which is then picked up by mics at the other end of the hallway. In Yes, Yes, Y'all, Jazzy D says, quote, As things went on, I started feeling the rhymes more, understanding them, and that's how I started using the echo chamber. I just started messing with it, and it came to me how to make it echo when they get to a certain part. Shaw Rock elaborates by saying, quote, Jazzy D knew everybody's rhymes, but because I was the female, he mostly put the echo on my voice. My thing was like, okay, when I go on, what you do is you echo this part. He knew when to turn the echo chamber on to make what I'm saying double up, to mesmerize the crowd while they're listening to me. 
The echo chamber effect became the signature sound of Shah Rock. DJ Baron explained it like this, quote, Shah Rock always had an echo. That brought out Shah Rock. When she came on, everybody came to the front. Shah Rock, ock, ock. People went wild. Here's a sample of Shah Rock performing with the echo chamber at an Africa Bambata Zulu Nation show in 1983, rapping over the classic hip-hop beat Seven Minutes of Funk by the band The Whole Darn Family. Shah Rock's signature echo chamber sound was very popular with the crowd and had quite an impact on a young MC in the early 80s known as Daryl DMC McDaniels of Run DMC. Here he is talking about how Shah Rock influenced him in a clip from Shah Rock's YouTube channel. Well, one day I heard something that wasn't Shah Rock's record, and it was a tape of her rhyming over Seven Minutes of Funk. And she said some crazy dope rhymes that is better than 85% of MCs out today, but this is what was um, life-changing in me. She was rhyming over don't, 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 and she was rhyming with the echo chamber? And she said, to all of you, my name is Shah Shah. And it said, I was like, what the hell? What is this echo chamber thing? She said, to all of you, my name is Shah Shah. I'm not a millionaire. I don't have a car, car. But here's one thing I want y'all to know. I'm a good loving person from a long time ago. Go, one of a kind, kind, rock your mind. I was like, I stood there in my house and rewinded that tape over for three days straight. I couldn't believe how incredible this girl was with the echo chamber. Then comes along and I get a chance to go make records. And I was like, yo, Jay, I gotta be like Shah Rock. I gotta have that echo chamber. You can listen to almost any early Run DMC song, and you'll hear the echo chamber in full effect. Here's a clip from Run's House, a song that DMC specifically mentioned as an homage to Shah Rock. Speaking of Shah Rock, it's important to point out her role in the Funky Four. She wasn't a novelty or used as a prop. She was integral to the group's success on stage. While they would occasionally call out the fact that she was a woman, her femininity was never played for laughs and she was never seen as anything other than an equal with the rest of the crew. In the male-dominated hip-hop scene, she was seen as just as good, if not better, than most other rappers. Her rhymes were just as boasting and macho as the boys, plus she had the skills to back it up. While Shah Rock might have been the first lady MC when she started in 1976, she wasn't the only one on the scene in the early days of hip-hop. As I mentioned in the Sugar Hill Gang episode, The Sequence was an R&B-inspired, all-female hip-hop group out of South Carolina. The trio, Cheryl the Pearl, Blondie, and Angie B, were the second hip-hop group signed to Sugar Hill Records in 1979, and their debut single, Funk You Up, became an early staple of the genre. In Philadelphia, Wendy Clark, known as Lady B, 
followed in the footsteps of Philly's own Jocko Henderson, starting as a radio DJ who later turned rapper. Lady B released one hip-hop single, 1979's To The Beat Y'all, on TEC Records, but was better known for her support of the culture through her time on the airwaves. That same year, she became one of the first DJs to play rap music outside of New York City, and would later go on to host her own hip-hop radio show, The Street Beat, in 1984. Because of her continued support of the music, she is often referred to as the godmother of rap. Here's a bit of her single, To The Beat Y'all. And finally, one other female rapper of note in the early days of hip-hop was Lisa Counts, a.k.a. Queen Lisa Lee, one of the members of Africa Bambata's Universal Zulu Nation. The story goes that Lisa was at a BAM show when she was only 13 years old and asked if she could get on the mic. She was such a hit with the audience that BAM put her on the flyer for his next show the following weekend. Queen Lisa Lee never released any solo efforts, but she is a strong voice in the debut single of Bambata's Zulu Nation Throwdown from 1980. Say, what's the name of this nation? Zulu, Zulu. And who's gonna get on down? The Cosmic Force, the Cosmic Force. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang, we all your main In 1979, three years after Breakout and Baron started working as the Brothers Disco, the Funky Four had a talented crew of MCs, a booming sound system, the novelty of the first female MC, and doo-wop-inspired rap and dance routines, making them a unique and powerful force in the hip-hop scene. They had regular gigs at clubs like the Ecstasy Garage and the Tea Connection, at Bronx roller skating rinks, and at park parties when the weather cooperated. They were virtually undefeated in rap battles, but they had yet to fight the Muhammad Ali of the hip-hop world, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Four. The Funky Four might have had a name in the Bronx, but Flash and the Furious Four were known in New York, New Jersey, and beyond. Defeating Flash and his crew would be a major boost to the Funky Four's reputation. If they could take down Melly Mel, Kid Creole, Cowboy Keith, and Mr. Ness, they'd be unstoppable. Their manager Jazzy D kept calling Ray Chandler, the manager of Flash and the Furious Four, to set something up, but Chandler was hesitant. Chandler was more concerned with money than clout, and he didn't see small-timers like the Funky Four bringing that many paying fans out to the battle that wouldn't already come to a Furious Four show, so it didn't make financial sense to him. But Flash and his crew weren't worried about the money. They saw the Funky Four as challengers to their throne, and they had to prove they were still the kings. So they went behind Chandler's back and set up a battle for May 1st, 1979, at the Police Athletic League, a.k.a. the PAL building, at 183rd Street and Webster Avenue in the Bronx. The cover charge was $4 for the guys and $3 for the ladies, and the place was packed to watch these two titans of hip-hop duke it out. Leading up to the battle, the Funky Four were fine-tuning their routines. In the book Yes, Yes, Y'all, Raheem says, quote, I was feeling myself. I was looking forward to the battle. We had done all of this rehearsing, practicing singing routines while dancing, and doing tricks with the mic stands and all that. I thought we had a legitimate shot to take these guys. They held nothing back because they knew this was going to be the biggest competition they'd had yet. 
Even though the Funky Four were supposed to kick off the night with their performance, Flash and the Furious Four stepped on stage first and took control. Insulted but incredulous, the Funky Four went out in front of the stage to watch the competition. As Raheem recalls in Yes, Yes, Y'all, quote, They pulled out all the stops. They sung, they danced, Flash cut and danced, and did some new tricks that we had never seen before. Then he whipped out the beatbox, and they sang more songs. The beatbox was an early electronic drum machine made by Vox that could replace an entire snare drum kit. Instead of just playing records all night, Flash would sometimes break out the beatbox as a secret weapon, creating his own beats on the fly. Doing so at a battle was definitely a show of strength and proof you were bringing something more than the same old records to the party. Here's a bit of a performance from 1981 with the Furious Five rapping and singing while Flash taps out a rhythm on the beatbox to give you an idea of what it might have sounded like when they were battling the Funky Four. Kid Creole goes on to say, quote, I think we did three sets apiece. We came on, we changed clothes on them, we made up new routines. When Flash pulled out a manually operated drum machine, which he called the beatbox, the crowd lost its mind. It was absolute pandemonium. The crowd's response to the Furious Four show put a damper on the Funky Four's night. As Raheem put it in Yes, Yes, Y'all, quote, If you saw them first, you'd be like, the battle is over. And I think other members of my group had the same feeling at the time. They were intimidated by the way that the Furious Four hit the stage. To Raheem, it seemed like the Funky Four had lost the battle before they even got on stage, and it showed in their performance. In Yes, Yes, Y'all, he describes the scene like this. Quote, Everyone was leaning against the back of the stage. I was amped, like, yo, let's blaze this. We're going to do this. We're going to take these guys. And I saw, like, this look in KK's eyes. He had this look of doubt, not the same fire that he came with in telling me that I could take Melly Mel. He didn't say verbally that he quit, but his body language suggested that. And as soon as they saw the Furious Four do their thing, the routines that we practiced were thrown out the window. We totally abandoned our game plan. I stood on the same stage with them, but I stood in the back and I let them do whatever they were going to do. However, the other members of the Funky Four remember things going another way. K.K. Rockwell said it was Raheem who seemed reticent to perform. In an interview with the Museum of Pop Culture, K.K. describes the situation differently. Quote, So all through the night, Raheem kept complaining about his voice. Yo, something's wrong with my voice. Oh, oh, my voice. So I didn't really pay too much attention to it. But then, when it was time for us to go on, he said, Yo, I don't want to do it. No matter which version of the story is true, after the Funky Four were finished, Raheem grabbed the mic and went on stage by himself. And yes, yes, y'all, he remembers, quote, There's no way that I'm going to be slighted because one person doesn't want to do what we worked so hard to get here for. I did 15 minutes by myself. I was soaking wet. It was a devastating night for the Funky Four. Not only had they clearly lost the battle, but they also lost a member of the crew, Raheem. A few days later, Raheem was lured away by the Furious Four, who were impressed with his solo act that night. But according to just about everyone from the Funky Four, Raheem's departure was a long time coming. In an interview for TheFoundation.com, Keith Keith said, quote, He started slacking. That's when me and KK said at a point, Raheem isn't into this like he used to be. He just wasn't putting his percentage in. You know, practicing, and when we did parties, he was not really into it. From the sound of things, Raheem was already gravitating towards the Furious Four before they approached him about joining the group. Keith Heath goes on to say, quote, 
I believe he left because the funky was more laid back than the furious was, such as the dressing. After a while, Rahim started dressing like them, wearing the leather and rhinestones and all that stuff. The flashy apparel of the Furious Four was one of the things that set them apart from so many rap crews. They had adopted a sort of punk rock biker aesthetic with leather pants, hats, and customized jackets with rhinestone designs covering the back. They were much more flamboyant than the street corner, jeans and t-shirt style of the Funky Four. The flashiest the group ever got were jean jackets with big Funky Four patches on the back, reminiscent of the gang vests that were common throughout New York City at the time. In Yes Yes Y'all, Jazzy D has another theory as to why Raheem left. Money. For a lot of hip-hop crews, most of the money they made from doing shows was reinvested as new equipment for the DJ's sound system or to buy new records to spin. The MCs might get a little spending money, usually enough to buy themselves a new pair of sneakers and a new outfit, but most of the money went back into the production of the shows. On the other hand, the Furious Four were better paid than most other rap crews because, by that time, Grandmaster Flash had made enough money as a DJ that he already had just about all the equipment he needed. Obviously, Flash still got paid, but that left a lot of money for the MCs to get a decent cut. From a business standpoint, it made sense for Rahim to follow the money. Regardless of why he left, the loss of Rahim hit the group hard. It hit Shah Rock so hard that she wound up leaving the Funky Four. And yes, yes, y'all, Shah Rock said, quote, Rahim was like my brother. After Rahim left the group, I was like, well, if he's leaving, I'm going to leave too, you know? I didn't leave to go to another group. I just left because he did. I just took a break. Down but not out, the remaining members of the crew, Breakout, Baron, Keith Keith, and KK Rockwell, held auditions once again to find new MCs. Although many tried out, the competition really only came down to three names. Rodney Stone, who went by the name Lil Rodney C., Jeff Marie, a.k.a. Jazzy Jeff, not to be confused with the DJ for the Fresh Prince, and Kevin Keaton, known as Special K. According to Keith Keith's interview on TheFoundation.com, the auditions took place at Barron's house. Lil Rodney C. and Jazzy Jeff had been performing together as part of another crew called the Magnificent Seven, but that group was having its own internal struggles, so they decided it was time to leave. Keith Keith goes on to say, quote, They came as a team, a team with their own routines. We were trying to build a Funky Four with, say, chemistry. Because they were already in sync with what the Funky Four were about, and already had established routines they could perform right out of the gate, it seemed an easy choice to bring them into the group. Special K was a very strong rapper, but he was by himself, so he wasn't really able to show off his abilities as an all-around performer. Keith Keith says, quote, Now maybe if somebody would have came with K, or just another person trying out, then we probably would have took K. Shortly after his audition, Special K would go on to join another group that had recently lost a founding member, The Treacherous Three, where he found success alongside rappers L.A. Sunshine and Cool Mo D. The first time the newly reformed Funky Four hit the stage was July 11th, 1979, DJ Breakout's birthday bash at a local park. Shah Rock was in the crowd that day, and her presence on stage was greatly missed. So much so, as she recalls, and yes, yes, y'all, quote, I think Jazzy D says, Shah Rock, I want you to get on the mic. The crowd wants to see you. So I got up there, and the crowd started just going crazy. Whatever misgivings Shah Rock had about being in the Funky Four melted away that day, and she soon rejoined the group. She says, quote, We were all young, going through these phases, whatever. But I went back for the love of hip-hop, for the love of the whole scenario. With Shah Rock back in the group, the Funky Four were rebranded the Funky Four Plus One. The Funky Four Plus One continued playing parties and battles for the next few months, until everything changed on September 16, 1979, when the Sugar Hill Gang released Rapper's Delight. Like most hip-hop crews at the time, the Funky Four Plus One weren't really interested in recording a rap record, because they weren't entirely sure it was an art form that really worked anywhere else but at a party or at a club. As Shah Rock said in Yes Yes Y'all, quote, at that time, to think about records wasn't even an issue. 
We never even really believed that it would go that far. But then Bobby Robinson showed up at a funky 4 plus 1 gig. Robinson was a record store owner and sometimes record producer under his label Enjoy Records. While most of his previous records had been R&B, blues, and rock and roll, he could see the potential with hip-hop and wound up producing some of the most influential early groups on the scene. Robinson was impressed and soon invited the group to the studio making the Funky 4 Plus 1 the first rap group with a record contract. Soon after, they recorded their first single, Rapid and Rock in the House. This is the way we rock the house. Sure enough, everybody gonna turn it out. Well, I'm kicking rock well, cause it rock so swell. Every time you hear my name, it rings a bell. Well, I'm leading right to see, making history with all the fly girls yelling, take me. Well, I'm sharp, rocking, I can't be stopped for all the fly guys gonna hit the top. Well, I'm key, key, but you can call me Keith Caesar. The reason why, cause I'm the women pleaser. Well, I'm Jazzy Jazz with the most finesse. Now I do it to the rhythm, till I do it the best. And with the funky four. And I'm the plus one more. And this is the way we go back and forth. With the five MCs, I ought to want to rebot the mics. And with the magical touch. We're on time, we're masterminds. We hypnotize when we run down the rhyme. There are four fly guys on the best female. I'm telling the truth, not a fairy tale. Now just listen to the story that the five put down. And it's guaranteed, so let the travel around. And we said it once, and we said it twice. And we'll prove it to you that we're better than nice. However, not everyone in the group was on the record. Only the MCs, K.K. Rockwell, Keith Keith, Lil Rodney C., Jazzy Jeff, and Shaw Rock signed to Enjoy Records. DJ Breakout and DJ Baron were left out of the deal. Looking to mimic the success of Rapper's Delight, Bobby Robinson brought in musician Errol Eduardo Bedward, better known as Pumpkin, and his band to interpolate music for the Funky Four's first single. The song they interpolated was Got To Be Real, released by Cheryl Lynn in 1978. Unlike Sugar Hill's interpolation of Good Times by Chic, Pumpkin did a much better job of disguising the similarities to Got To Be Real. In fact, unless they're played side by side, you probably wouldn't think they were the same melody at all. Here's a sample of both so you can check it out yourself. Don't stop, just turn on your mind when you're ready to rock. Because the sun won't shine, the rain won't stop, but we got a style called punk rock. Just get about the chest, not the house. Beyond the backing music, there wasn't much of a plan when it came to recording the first Funky 4 Plus 1 single. According to K.K. Rockwell and Yes Yes Y'all, quote, Bobby laid the track down for us and we came in and did it in one take. No rehearsal. Nobody said how long it was supposed to be and we just kept rapping. 14 minutes of non-stop rapping. K.K. is actually selling the group short there because they wound up rapping non-stop for 16 minutes, making Rapping and Rocking the House one of the longest songs in hip-hop history. However, K.K. isn't wrong about the 14 minutes either because there were actually two slightly different versions of the song, the 16-minute A-side and the 14-minute B-side. That being said, the running time isn't the biggest impact Rappin' and Rockin' the House had on rap music. The song's legacy is that it unknowingly signaled the descent of the hip-hop DJ. With their routines and dance moves, the Funky Four had taken center stage, quite literally, long before they recorded a single, but they had always needed DJs Baron and Breakout to give them a beat to rap to. But with a house band playing the backing track, the DJs just weren't necessary anymore. Unlike the Sugar Hill Gang, who were never attached to a DJ in the first place, Rappin' and Rockin' the House marked the first time the DJ was actively pushed aside from an established crew in order to showcase the rappers alone. From the record company's standpoint, using a band for the backing track makes sense. You can interpolate a popular song and potentially skirt any licensing issues, which isn't possible when a DJ is just spinning a record of the song you want to use. In addition, a group of musicians can play the same beat for quite a long time without any noticeable mistakes. Whereas if a DJ misses a needle drop for a loop just one time, it could throw off the whole recording. And the more takes you need to record in a studio, the more it costs to produce your song. But there were other considerations for dropping the DJs too. 
As I mentioned earlier, sharing the money from a live hip-hop performance was a lopsided affair. The manager took his cut, then the DJ took most of the money in order to upgrade the sound system and buy more records to spin. The MCs got whatever was left after all other expenses were paid. According to Jazzy Jeff in the book Yes, Yes, Y'all, quote, Before records, we had a salary of like $75 a party. That was for the MCs. It was about your sound system then. You couldn't do it without a sound system, so Baron and Breakout and Jazzy D made most of the money. But once you take the DJ out of the equation, it leaves more money for the MCs. DJ Baron agrees, saying in Yes, Yes, Y'all, quote, That was our downfall, when we met Bobby Robinson and made Rapid and Rock in the house. When we went into the studio and they got their first payment of $600, it was, Ha ha, we don't need Breakout and Baron no more. We got our own money. We let our records play for us. That's how that went. That's how we faded away. And fade away they did. In a 2011 interview at OldSchoolHipHop.com, Baron says this about the breakup, quote, It kind of like knocked the wind out of me, man. It'll kind of just recycle itself all over again. Get some more MCs so they can do the same thing? Nah. I was just too through. Ain't nobody wanted to do underground anymore. Everybody wanted to make a record. After the breakup, the Brothers Disco still played the occasional party, but mostly got out of hip-hop. Later, the two formed a construction company and worked regular 9-to-5 jobs. They've kept in touch over the years and have even performed together, but they weren't very active in hip-hop after the group broke up. Rapid and Rock in the House didn't reach the charts, which isn't a big surprise considering a small label like Enjoy Records couldn't afford to promote it much. They also didn't release a shorter, radio-friendly cut, which meant it didn't have the reach that a song like Rapper's Delight's 7-minute version could. However, the record was a hit with people in the Bronx hip-hop scene, who held it up as a reflection of real hip-hop, like the kind you'd see at an actual jam. This was in contrast to the more manufactured and simplistic sound of Rapper's Delight. And the two songs really couldn't be any different. Rapper's Delight was a laid-back, basic series of verses from one rapper, then another, then another, then back to the first rapper, without any real coordination other than passing the mic with lines like, and next on the mic is my man Hank, come on Hank, sing that song. But Rapid and Rockin' the House is dynamic and fast-paced, with the MCs rapping in unison, trading lines within the same verse, rapping as a duet and as a chorus, and showing how nimble and lively a rap performance from a well-rehearsed group could be. It really helps convey the feeling and excitement of those early hip-hop parties. And with that in mind, the Funky 4 Plus 1 wanted to expand their audience by taking their sound to some unusual places. To bring their sound to a wider audience, the Funky 4 Plus 1 booked gigs in places far removed from the comfort of their hometown fans in the Bronx. For example, they played The Ritz, a high-end rock club in the East Village founded in 1980. While it was in operation, MTV used to host regular live broadcasts from the club, and performers like Guns N' Roses, Danzig, Alice Cooper, Iggy Pop, Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, U2, and Tina Turner held concerts there. And yet, The Ritz was one of the first places that the Funky 4 Plus 1 really broke out. Shah Rock describes the experience like this in Yes, Yes, Y'all. Quote, Our thing was, okay, we're playing down here in the Ritz. This is like a rich club, and we can pull it off, make the people just go crazy over us. And we did it. We had them going crazy, shouting, repeating ho, screaming, hollering, and that's when we knew that we crossed over. When we was able to get a different type of listener to listen to our street music, to me that was the ultimate. In addition to the hard rock and Ritz, the Funky 4 Plus 1 also crossed over to the art house and punk, post-punk, new wave scenes. One of the venues they were known for playing was The Mud Club, an underground music and art venue in downtown Manhattan that ran from 1978 until 1983. The club was famous for its fourth-floor art gallery, curated by graffiti artist Keith Haring, musical performers ranging from the Ramones to the Talking Heads to Frank Zappa, and literary readings from Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs. Punk music and its various post-punk evolutions were all founded on a very DIY philosophy that rebelled against the polished mainstream pop aesthetic. To be a band, you didn't need a lot of fancy instruments. You didn't need ghostwritten vocals. You didn't need an expensive marketing department. Hip-hop was in a similar place at the time, 
with kids using pre-existing records to create break loops and scratches, writing their own rhymes, and then putting it out there in unusual venues like high schools, roller rinks, and public parks, all with marketing that mostly consisted of homemade show flyers that were photocopied at Kinko's earlier that day. Soon enough, groups like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five began sporting leather, spiked collars, and wristbands normally seen in a punk club. Africa Bambata began using beats inspired by the synth sounds of Kraftwerk, and punk bands like The Clash started integrating more hip-hop style into their music, like 1981's The Magnificent Seven off their album Sandinista. Another venue the Funky 4 Plus One played was The Kitchen, a performance and art space that was located on Wooster Street in Soho. The Kitchen hosted everything from dance recitals to orchestral performances to rock concerts. Here they are performing at The Kitchen in 1980. You can tell this was an upscale place because the sound quality of this recording is incredible compared to the tapes that were being recorded at Bronx parties. Even more unusual, there's video of this performance, which I'll link to in the show notes. In fact, it was at the kitchen where Debbie Harry of Blondie first saw the Funky 4 Plus 1 perform. Blondie was an influential new wave band that took an early interest in hip-hop thanks to graffiti artist and hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy. According to the Funky 4's Lil Rodney C in a 2011 interview with OldSchoolHipHop.com, quote, See, back in these days, Fab Five Freddy used to walk around with a cassette tape with Flash on one side and the Funky on the other, and he would play this tape for all of his white friends from downtown to here. After seeing them perform at the kitchen, Harry became a fan of the Funky 4 Plus 1, primarily because she saw a kindred feminine spirit in Shaw Rock. However, Harry wasn't the only woman who took notice of the Funky 4 Plus 1 around this time. According to Shaw Rock and Yes Yes Y'all, it was a business decision, plain and simple, when Sylvia Robinson of Sugar Hill Records offered $50,000 to buy out the Funky 4 Plus 1 from Enjoy Records. Enjoy label owner and producer Bobby Robinson, no relation, was paying $10,000 and the other $40,000 was split between the MCs and their manager. And Yes Yes Y'all, Jazzy Jeff says, quote, For doing what we was doing at that time, it was good money. I mean, I was in the 10th grade and I had $5,000. Yeah, for all of us, that was money. We were satisfied. Because first of all, it was a hobby. Now the hobby was turning into a good job. We took the money and went. However, not everyone involved with the crew was so keen on the move to Sugar Hill Records. According to K.K. Rockwell in a 2011 interview with OldSchoolHipHop.com, quote, Jazzy D told us not to go to Sugar Hill. He was saying, yo, that company's not right. We can look for something better. The majority of the group felt that, you know, Sugar Hill was the one. And yes, yes, y'all, Shaw Rock goes on to say about the Sugar Hill switch, quote, we didn't know anything about the money or the music business. We were thinking about the fame, just being able to get people to know how great we were. That's what it was all about. So we said, if the Sugar Hill Gang is being recognized worldwide, maybe they can do the same thing for us. 
because we know we're as good as the Sugar Hill Gang. We started this, so we need to get out there and let people know that we started it. The group signed a three-year contract with options to extend that contract on June 30th, 1980, soon after the Funky 4 Plus One recorded their biggest hit and arguably their defining song, That's the Joint. The song is a nine-minute showcase that is a perfect distillation of what the Funky Four was all about. Every member of the crew gets their own verses, and there are plenty of opportunities for rapping in unison, as well as passing the mic in the middle of a verse, highlighting the way they performed as a group. Like all Sugar Hill songs at the time, That's the Joint would interpolate another song as its backing track, in this case, Rescue Me, a 1980 disco tune from the group A Taste of Honey. Oddly enough, Rescue Me wasn't a very big hit for A Taste of Honey, especially compared to their signature song, Boogie Oogie Oogie, which topped the pop, soul, and disco charts. Rescue Me hit number 16 on the US R&B charts, but failed to make it on the pop charts, and would probably be forgotten today were it not for That's the Joint. Since then, the song has been sampled and interpolated many times by hip-hop artists, most notably by Positive K's I Got a Man in 1992, which made it to number 14 on the Hot 100. In 1980, Sugar Hill kicked off the Sugar Hill Convention Tour, a string of concerts headlined by the Sugar Hill Gang, but supported by many of the label's hottest acts. Shaw Rock talks about the tour in Yes Yes Y'all, quote, We toured like 52 cities. The promoters promoted it very well. We never went into a place where they didn't know we were coming, where they said, No, we're not liking this type of music, or whatever. Because they knew Rapper's Delight, that opened up the doors for everybody else. Even if they hadn't heard our song, they gave you the opportunity to just go off, to show them what you were about. Despite concerts and the promotional backing of Sugar Hill Records, That's the Joint failed to make the charts. Mainstream audiences just weren't really ready for hip-hop yet. But that would start to change in part thanks to the Funky 4 Plus 1. During the Sugar Hill Records tour, the Funky 4 Plus 1 were approached by Debbie Harry and her band Blondie with a very special opportunity to perform on Saturday Night Live. Harry had been tapped to host, Blondie would perform a couple of songs, and in an unusual move, Blondie was given the option of bringing on another musical act to fill a few minutes at the end of the show. But when the opportunity came up, Harry jumped at the chance to introduce rap music to a national audience. Reportedly, she asked the Funky Four to perform because of Shaw Rock. Harry liked the idea of showing a woman on stage to illustrate that this was an inclusive art form. The episode hit the airwaves on Valentine's Day 1981, and the Funky Four were the last performers of the night, just before the credits rolled. Wow, the next group are among the best street rappers in the country. Please welcome my friends from the Bronx, the Funky Four, plus one more.
The Funky 4 Plus 1 only performed for about two minutes, but it was a groundbreaking moment for hip-hop. As Lil Rodney C. said in an OldSchoolHipHop.com interview, quote, It was a hell of an experience. We were the first hip-hop group to do national television. We didn't even know what national television meant at that time, but we knew it was important. After that night, SNL put us on the map wherever we went. Wherever we played, people seemed to know us overnight. Florida, Texas, Kentucky, wherever we went. They couldn't wait to see us, and they would tell us, Yo, I seen you on Saturday Night Live, and you guys were good. While the SNL performance was important, it wasn't necessarily the best introduction to everything hip-hop had to offer. For one, it was a very short routine. Two minutes barely scratched the surface of That's the Joint's nine-minute runtime. In addition, DJ Breakout, who had rejoined the group for live performances during the Sugar Hill Tour, did appear on stage with the Funky Four, but he was basically just mimicking spinning the record. There was no scratching or looping the beat. In fact, his equipment wasn't even plugged into the sound system. Chris Stein of Blondie explained the situation in a 2014 interview for WaxPoetics.com. Quote, the people on the show were so nervous about them doing it. I remember trying to explain to them how scratching worked. Trying to verbalize what that is for someone who has no idea, it's really difficult. So while it might not have been the best introduction to hip-hop, it at least gave everyone in America a taste of what was to come. As I mentioned in the Sugar Hill Gang episode, and you'll see it will become a common theme throughout this podcast series, Sugar Hill Records was notorious for their shady business practices, most notably not paying artists what they were owed. Unfortunately, the Funky 4 Plus 1 were not immune to this routine. According to K.K. Rockwell in his interview with OldSchoolHipHop.com, quote, Before we started with them, we worked out a deal with them. We set a price. We did a couple of shows, and when we came back, we was expecting a certain amount of money. And when we got back, she only gave us a third of what we agreed upon. She told us we had to pay for buses. We had to pay for the hotels. Aside from not getting the money they deserved, Sugar Hill Records held back the Funky 4 Plus 1 in other ways, too. During rehearsals for the SNL gig, things took an interesting turn. Lil Rodney C. tells the story in his interview with OldSchoolHipHop.com. Quote, So Blondie says, How is Sugar Hill treating y'all? And we all froze, and we all look at each other, but no one answers her. So she basically said, I understand, and walked away. About an hour later, she came back and said, I got some good news and some bad news. She said, The good news is, we are about to go on tour, and it is actually a two-year tour, and we want to take you guys with us as our opening act. Blondie says, Plus we want y'all to record on the title song of our next album. So we were like, great, what's the bad news? Blondie said, we can't do any of that as long as you guys are still with Sugar Hill Records. As you might recall from the Sugar Hill Gang episode, the Robinsons of Sugar Hill Records had a very controlling management style. The label was known for holding out royalty payments, as well as using gifts like cars that the company had purchased for their artists as leverage to keep their musicians in line. It's hard to say what Sugar Hill Records didn't like about the offer from Blondie, but as we'll learn later in this episode, Sugar Hill was a very demanding label so it's likely they tried to shove their weight around a bit too much, and Blondie's record label, Chrysalis, balked. For some in the group, the opportunity they were being offered with Blondie was worth leaving Sugar Hill over. In his OldSchoolHipHop.com interview, Lil Rodney C. goes on to say about leaving Sugar Hill, quote, Yo, we out. But it just wasn't that easy. Sylvia did her divide-and-conquer shit and destroyed a good group. Harry offered to help them get out of their contract by putting them in touch with a lawyer, but only two members of the group, Lil Rodney C. and K.K. Rockwell, broke from Sugar Hill. Shaw Rock, Keith Keith, and Jazzy Jeff wound up staying on. In that same OldSchoolHipHop.com interview, Keith Keith goes on to say, quote, She wasn't going to let all of us go. She said she would rather break us up than let us all go together. So it was either some of us go and some of us stay, or everybody just stay. I don't know what would have happened if we all would have said we are leaving. Who knows, we might have gotten sued. I don't know what would have happened or whatever, but we were under contract. 
According to Little Rodney C., the Funky 4 Plus One broke up on May 9th, 1981, less than 10 months after signing with Sugar Hill Records. Lil Rodney C. and K.K. Rockwell got out of their contracts and formed the rapping duo Double Trouble. After the breakup, Double Trouble did a few shows with their former DJs Baron and Breakout, before eventually hooking up with Rodney's old DJ from the Magnificent Seven crew, DJ Stevie Steve. The duo's most notable performance was in the first hip-hop movie, 1982's Wild Style. While they performed twice in the film, the performance they're best known for is a barely one-minute song called Stoop Rap, with Rodney and K.K. sitting on the front stoop of a row house in the Bronx. It's really a great example of the back-and-forth dynamics of rap music at the time. The song is also a bit of a pushback to Sugar Hill Records, especially with the opening lines as a thinly-veiled retelling of what happened to the Funky 4 Plus One. Here's a little story that must be told. About two cool brothers that were put on hold. They tried to hold us back for fortune and fame. They destroyed the crew and they killed the name. They, they tried to step on the ego and walk on the pride. But true blue brothers stand side by side through. Thick and thin from beginning to end. This battle we lost. But the war will win. Cause double trouble is in the house. I'm cake and rock and rock. See, we'll turn it out. Well, I'm cake and rock well cause I raise a lot of hell. I love to make love to the judge of yeah, females. Yeah. And I'm down with the crew from the Do hill. it. Well, I'm little Rodney C.N. Yeah, I aim uh, to please. I yeah. want my name to go down in history. I want to be greater than George Washington because yeah. I can rock any party from sun to sun. And together, forever, we're, we're number one. one. Double, Double Trouble is in the house. house. Don't you know Double, Double Trouble's going to turn it out, y'all? Double Trouble. 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 The opening lines, here's a little story that must be told about two cool brothers that were put on hold were paraphrased by the Beastie Boys in 1986 for the opening lines of their hit, Paul Revere, that went, Now here's a little story I've got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. And in 1997, in a commercial for the soft drink Sprite, Nas and AZ paid homage to the song, even singing it on the front stoop of a house reminiscent of the one from Wild Style. What up, son? Firm biz, baby. Don't hate it, obey it. Here's a little story that must be told About two players rocking all the ice and gold They try to slow us down mm. from laying the law But we kept it real, what? just playing it raw Pushed up on our ladies, spoke on our name But real cats never get caught in uh -uh. the game Player haters, why? Gators made us fly And we rock all the linen with the latest ties Firm come first, obey your thirst Nines and AZ all day it hurts Obey your thirst, yeah. kid A quick aside about Wild Style in just about any interview with members of the Funky Four, when Wild Style comes up, they all insist that the movie was initially conceived as a documentary about them. But once again, Sugar Hill Records refused to let the film go forward as planned. The reason behind this decision isn't known, but in the end, the director, Charlie Ahern, switched gears and made it a fictionalized story of a white female reporter who discovers the hip-hop scene thanks to Fab Five Freddy. Not unlike the similar relationship Freddy had with Debbie Harry. Stay tuned to Bring the Noise, because I'll be covering more of the backstory of Wild Style in a future episode. After Wild Style, Lil Rodney C. and K.K. Rockwell signed with Capitol Records and released the single Think About It in 1983. However, they couldn't call themselves Double Trouble anymore because that name had been taken by blues guitarist Stevie Ray Vaughan for his backing band. So instead, they went by the name The Deuce. The album wasn't promoted very well, so it didn't make much of a splash. In 1986, Lil Rodney C. and K.K. Rockwell performed Bombs Aren't Cool, an anti-nuclear war song, and were featured in a bizarre music video that was shown to kids in U.S. schools. 
I did a little digging to learn more about this song, but I really couldn't find much. I'm not sure if they were hired to write the song for the video, or if they only performed it. And as far as I can tell, it was never released as a single, but only as a music video for schools. Either way, it's a weird song with an even weirder video that I'll put a link to in the show notes. Here's a bit of the song to give you a taste. The duo would later sign back on to Enjoy Records, changing their name once again, this time to The Deuce 2, for their 1987 single, Are You Ready for the Big Throwdown. Like their previous efforts, the song wasn't a hit, and they never released another single together. Today, Lil Rodney C. is still part of the hip-hop culture, and even released a new single in 2019 called Gonna Get Paid. Here I go with the flow, cause I'm running a show, producing stacks of tracks, getting mad dough. I'm coming back with the tracks that are mad fat, right and exact, homie show me cause it's like that. Back in the day, I had my way when I used to play, and when I walked into a spot, they knew me right away. They gave me props nonstop. More recently, Rodney was diagnosed with COVID-19 in April of 2020, but thankfully he has made a recovery and is still out there rocking the house today. KK Rockwell apparently got out of hip-hop in the late 80s, but has rejoined the Funky Four on more than one occasion to perform for reunion concerts. One interesting final note, Lil Rodney C. and the lead singer of the sequence, Angie B., a.k.a. Angela Brown, got married in 1983. They have one daughter, Diamond, born in 1984, but divorced sometime in the late 1980s. Some historians have called them rap's first power couple, sort of the early 80s version of Beyonce and Jay-Z. With two members gone, that left only three behind, Shah Rock, Keith Keith, and Jazzy Jeff, which doesn't make for a very funky four. So to round out the group, Sugar Hill Records brought on DJ WizKid to spin records, and Lil Ikey C from Africa Bambata's Cosmic Force crew as a fourth MC. However, because Sugar Hill continued to use live bands for their backing music, these two performers were only used for live shows and didn't appear on any of the group's subsequent singles. And there were a few more singles from the newly re-renamed Funky Four. They dropped the plus one after the breakup. Do You Wanna Rock was released in 1982 and is surprisingly light on rap and heavy on disco instrumentals and R&B style singing. The backing music is based on Before I Let Go by Maze, a 1981 hit by the R&B group led by singer-songwriter Frankie Beverly. Do You Wanna Rock isn't a bad song, but it's such a departure from the Funky Force previous work, like That's the Joint, that the contrast is pretty jarring. Now this is the way we want and done, and at the same time, mess with your mind. On the same identical beat one time, as we possess the beat that'll make you wanna rock, taking you on down to the last stop. We are the Funky Yes, we are the four. Now here's Miss Kid. The DJ's down by law. So are you ready to party? 
are two other Funky Four singles from 1982 that are really hard to find, even in the age of the internet. In fact, as far as I can tell, they were only ever released on a British CD compilation from the year 2000, called Back to the Old School 2, That's the Joint, from Sequel Records. The first one, Square Biz, shows a bit of a return to form compared to Do You Wanna Rock? The backing music still has that disco flair of the 1970s, but the group actually raps quite a bit, and they seem to have come back to their more choreographed, coordinated style. It's not as good as That's the Joint by any means, but it's a much better example of their previous sound than any of their other post-breakup singles. In typical Sugar Hill Records style, the backing track is based on another song, also called Square Biz, released in 1981 by Tina Marie. Tina's version was a pretty big hit, reaching number 50 on the Billboard Hot 100, number 12 on the dance charts, and number 3 on the R&B charts. Here's Tina Marie's Square Biz, so you can hear how obvious the interpolation is. In this case, it's entirely possible that Sugar Hill didn't release the single because they were concerned about copyright claims from Tina Marie's label. The other obscure single, Superstars, is so hard to find, it's not on any of the music streaming services or even YouTube. The only place I could find it was the UK Back to the Old School compilation album. Superstars is trying to bridge the gap between hip-hop and punk with a big dose of the new wave genre that punk was evolving into. They even spell out P-U-N-K-R-O-C-K towards the end of the song to help solidify their intentions. The backing track is very similar to the song Cars, the 1979 hit from new wave artist Gary Newman. Cars hit number one on the UK charts and got to number nine on the US Hot 100 and has since become one of the standards of new wave music, so it's understandable that the Funky Four were looking to emulate that sound. Here's Gary Newman's Cars. Here's the Funky Four's Superstars. Because Cars was such a big hit, it's possible Sugar Hill couldn't get the rights to use the interpolation for their song, so Superstars was never released here in the States. Or, maybe the heads of the label just didn't like the song, so they never bothered. Unfortunately, we may never know the full story behind these mysterious UK-only singles. The following year, 1983, saw the release of two more Funky Four tracks here in America, including Feel It, The Mexican. 
Feel It borrows a riff from the hip-hop jam staple song The Mexican by Babe Ruth, one of the original songs that DJ Cool Herc used in his merry-go-round technique debut. Here's a little taste of the original Mexican, just to refresh your memory. And then here's the Funky Fours, Feel It, the Mexican. Post-breakup singles are clearly the remaining members of the Funky Four, Shaw Rock, Keith Keith, and Jazzy Jeff, struggling to find their voice. They seem to be trying just about every style of sound from smooth R&B with Do You Wanna Rock to New Wave with Superstars, and now trying to return to their hip-hop roots with Feel It, all in an effort to find their footing. Unfortunately, they never quite gelled again. Perhaps the most telling song to show this lack of cohesion is the group's other single from 1983, King Heroin, inspired by the 1972 song of the same name by James Brown. Both feature lyrics that are espousing the dangers of heroin, but the Funky Four's version updates the original for the hip-hop era. This was a pretty obvious attempt to jump on the conscious rap bandwagon started by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's The Message, also from Sugar Hill Records, released the year before in 1982. Oddly enough, only Jazzy Jeff raps on this song, even though the song is credited to the entire Funky Four. The other members of the group appear in part of a mid-song interlude skit, but they don't actually rap or sing. The backing track is a barely disguised interpolation of 1974's for the love of money by the OJs. In fact, King Heroin borrows liberally from many aspects of the song, including the OJs' famous hook. Here's the OJs. And here's King Heroin paying homage, to put it politely. As far as I can tell, the Funky Four's King Heroin was only released on a compilation album with another Sugar Hill Records signee, The Crash Crew. The album, 1983's Crash Crew Meets Funky Four, had four singles from each group on either side of the record. Aside from King Heroin, the other Funky Four singles on side A were That's the Joint, Feel It, and Do You Wanna Rock. Even though it wasn't released as a single, King Heroin was clearly a passion project for the star of the song, Jazzy Jeff. In 1985, after leaving Sugar Hill Records, he released a solo album with Jive Records called On Fire and included King Heroin with slightly tweaked lyrics and updated music that was stripped down to just a drum machine, 
updating it for the direction hip-hop was going at the time. If you didn't know the title and the artist were the same, you'd never connect the two songs together. They're so wildly different. Listen to this and you'll learn your lesson. King Halloween, you know me. I was raised in the land called Poppy C. Well, I know by all throughout the world. By men, boys, women, all ages and girls. I've been used and abused by yes, all sorts. Running with the politics, causing trouble for sports. Cause you use me once, you do it again. And if not by yourself, then oh, with a friend. I have this snippet. By 1984, the Funky Four had all but broken up. It wasn't a sudden event that happened with a bang, but something that fizzled out over time as their contracts expired. Between not letting the group work with Blondie, and the fact that Sugar Hill Records was pulling the same shenanigans with the Funky Four's royalty payments that they did with the Sugar Hill Gang and many other groups on the label, didn't make the members of the group want to stick around when their three-year contract was up. Shaw Rock was already dabbling in other avenues of hip-hop, including performing with fellow pioneering female MCs Queen Lisa Lee and Debbie D to create the supergroup Us Girls. Us Girls only recorded one single, New York City Breakers, which appeared on the compilation album Breakdance in 1984. The tune is essentially a theme song for a breakdancing troupe of the same name that was sort of the mainstream face of breaking in the early to mid-80s. The New York City Breakers, the big cash money makers, the one and our heart breakers, the breakdance battle takers, and it's Us Girls running down a fucking ride, and this is how we introduce them one at a time. Here's a New York City Breaker with moves to shock, the lack of effort in the air, they call her flip rock, like an acrobat from outer space, with fresh air moves all in your face. Say what? I got a New York City Breaker and I call on Pastor, just wait till you see him do his no hand next. Here's a key to combination, it's been so sweet, from his neck to his back, he can't be beat. Hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. But Us Girls' biggest impact was a live performance in the 1984 hip-hop movie Beat Street. According to historian Jay Kwan, Shaw Rock was still under contract when the scene was shot sometime in 1983. Sugar Hill only let her perform in the film if the director Stan Lathan would allow Sugar Hill artists Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five to appear in the film and perform the title track. It's this kind of strong-arming by Sugar Hill Records that might have blocked the collaboration with Blondie after Saturday Night Live. In this case, the agreement was made, and Us Girls got a few minutes to do their thing in the movie, as well as on the soundtrack album for Beat Street. Here's a clip of their song, Us Girls, from the film. The fly girl Debbie D needs someone who can hold my policy. So, hey fellas, move on close. Take me on a cruise, then watch me float. Wanna die my mind, show me I'm fresh, and I will always let you know Debbie D is best. Shyrock is the woman with the magical touch. I'm like burning fire, you know I'm just too much. I wanna treat you like a king in the heat of the night. Romance to the moon, if your timing is right. Get your back wet, I'll soak this wet. He says I'm the kind of girl that he could never forget. She's sophisticated, it's the lady Lisa Lee to be the man in my life. You got to be my only, I'll always hold you secure. And my arms real tight, squeeze you real good till you feel just right. I have a heart of gold I want to share with you and give you the type of loving that you've never been through. And if you dig where we're coming from, say yeah. yeah. And if you want to rock this party tonight, say yeah. Shortly after Beat Street, Shaw Rock left the world of hip-hop to raise a family. 
She'd been pregnant with her first child when they performed on Saturday Night Live, hiding her baby bump underneath a bulky pink sweater, so her priorities had begun to change. However, since the resurgence of the old school in the late 90s, she has been a staple in the hip-hop community, winning numerous awards and accolades for her role in the birth of the genre. She also wrote her autobiography, Luminary Icon, the story of the beginning and end of hip-hop's first female MC in 2011. You can find it on Amazon or at her website, mcshawrockonline.com. Today, Shaw Rock hosts a podcast called Shaw Rock Live and Direct, where she interviews African-American scholars and activists, as well as hip-hop artists of the past, like Yo-Yo, Kumo D, and Professor Griff, just to name a few. Other than a stray interview here and there, I couldn't find much about the post-funky life of Keith Keith. It seems he was still supportive of the culture and kept in touch with his friends from the group, but he didn't pursue a solo career or hook up with another crew after they left Sugar Hill Records. But whenever the group gets back together to perform or accept an honorary award, which they have many times over the last 15 years or so, Keith Caesar is always there to lend his voice and his charisma. Even before they were ever put to vinyl, the Funky 4 Plus 1 had a major impact on hip-hop. They were the first group to have a female MC. Shaw Rock is an integral part of the group. They were at the forefront of making the MCs the real stars of the music. They helped pioneer choreographed routines as part of the stage show, and they advanced the style of rapping coordinated lyrics to give their live performance that extra punch. When they started recording, they brought authenticity to the genre by coming up together. Unlike their predecessors, the Sugar Hill Gang, who were manufactured in the studio, the Funky Four paid their dues for three years in the park parties and clubs before making it big. And then they went on to expand the scope of rap's reach beyond the streets by playing for a wider audience in venues that weren't known for hip-hop. But that was just a lead-up to them taking the biggest step of all when they introduced this new style of music to a national television audience. Without the Funky Four Plus One, it's entirely possible that rap music might not have ever broken out of the Bronx. The Sugar Hill Gang and Rapper's Delight could have just been a quirky novelty song, and the genre might have stayed underground, eventually fading like so many artistic movements that never catch on with the mainstream. When I found the record of That's the Joint at the Antique Mall that day, I knew I had to grab it because, man, it really is the joint. Between that disco-infused bopping beat that just makes you want to get up and dance, and the back-and-forth play of the Funky Four plus one more, to me, it's the epitome of the old-school hip-hop sound and style. I've listened to the song countless times, and I still never get sick of it. Maybe that's why VH1 declared it one of the top 50 hip-hop songs of all time. And I have to say, it's probably in my personal top 50 as well. On the next episode of Bring the Noise, we're going to look at a scrappy group of rappers that built their reputation destroying rivals at rap battles, and then went on to introduce a new style of hip-hop on record that has endured to this day. Make sure you subscribe today so you don't miss a beat. And while you're at it, fire up your Spotify account for the Bring the Noise podcast playlist. After every episode, I'll be putting together a playlist for that episode filled with songs from the featured artists, as well as other music mentioned in the show, so you can follow along with rap history as it blossoms into the world of hip-hop we know today. Check out the show notes for a link to this episode's playlist, or just search for Bring the Noise Podcast in the Spotify app and you'll find them all. As always, thanks for listening to the latest episode of Bring the Noise, a history of early hip-hop presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. This has been your host, Rob Lamley. Please subscribe and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter and on Instagram at smxaudio, and check out the website spacemonkeyx.net for today's show notes, as well as links to other workshop podcasts. Thanks again for listening to Bring the Noise, a history of early hip-hop. I'll see you all next time. Turn on your mic and start